Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleased to say that joining Tom and I in a studio here in New York, Gina Martin Adams, Bloomberg Intelligence is, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. Isn't this a beautiful thing? It's just a great oh, good, good morning thing. to you, two Gina. Days in a row. Good much. morning. Let's thank talk you for about earnings. Me. We're looking forward to catching up with you a lot over the next couple of weeks. Your thoughts so far? Uh, so so far so good. About eighty percent of companies are beating expectations. Of course, we're only about a fifth Shocked. of the market cap through the S and P five hundred, and it's all financials. Uh, this morning's a little mixed. You've got a few beats, a few misses, a little bit more mixed results. I'm very very happy to see the forward guidance from some companies. I mean, this is one of our concerns: is we were just going to have total radio silence on forward guidance because there's so little visibility Excuse in the me, outlook. There's, there's so. never radio silence. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's well, not radio. It's silence. always my word. I know if there's, there's radio never radio silence, silence for you. <laughs> UPS, UPS out with numbers just now, boosting their year outlook as well. Gina, you've been crunching the numbers. It's that time of year. The scars of Q4 yeah. 2018 are still very deep. We're looking out to 2020. The analysts are starting to line up. Yep. Cut, 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 cut. How damaging is it? What does it look like? You know, it's really interesting, actually. In comparison to this time last year, it's almost nothing. I mean, last year, earnings estimates just fell off a cliff. Now, we might be a bit early to make this sort of statement because it really didn't happen until late October last year. So you want to reserve the right for judgment for another week or two of earnings season. But should we get through this season, this week, as well as next week, without a material downdraft in 2020? Mm -hmm. It will look completely opposite of what last year looked like, which was just an absolute plummeting in expectations. We just haven't seen that yet. Instead, the 2020 numbers are coming down because the 2019 numbers are coming down, which is very different than last year, where 2018 looked okay, but 2019 numbers were coming down. This year, it's all about, okay, this year is weak, but next year we should see a little bit of recovery. And a lot of that, we were talking about this yesterday, Tom, a lot of that is the comp. I mean, we can't underappreciate how strong last year was because of corporate tax reform. You had double the average pace of revenue growth, triple the average pace of earnings growth. We're comparing to those numbers. And that's, in some cases, making the earnings stream look artificially weak, not necessarily a core weakness. I'm going to paint the reality here. And this goes to Paul Sweeney's excellence in building Bloomberg Intelligence. Gene, as you know, there's acres of analysts working for Bloomberg Intelligence in New York, in Princeton as well. It's like... It's like one of those Spielberg movies, John, where they go back. You can't see where they end. The junior analysts are in the mist. The trading floor is like a a football field. It's like the UBS trading floor in Stanford years ago. I don't know what you're talking about. There are not enough of us. But Gina, (laughs) at the bottom line of the accounting statements is CapEx. Can they get through this earnings year by cutting CapEx? That's like trick 101, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. between CapEx and operating expenditure, which tax reform blended the lines between those two things as well. Um, So between those two things... She can bring a complete halt. (laughs) I I do think that there is some capacity for corporates to really rationalize expenses across the board, and that is what typically creates some sort of bottom in margins, which creates a turn in earnings progress. And we have seen that to a certain degree, but in particular for the big communications companies like the Facebooks and the Googles of the world, which are really dominating operating expenditure for the entire index. They're dominating SG&A expense for the entire index as well. 
to the extent that they can cut some of their expenditure or their planned expenditure, that does create a turnaround in margins. Now that everybody's snoozing, I'll stop talking about it. I just see Tom looks very distracted. Netflix, okay, Netflix, 2.6 billion cash from operations. Less than 10% of that is CapEx. I mean, that's how odd some of these companies are. So let's look out to 2020. Profits for 2020, are we still looking at profit growth at 10%? Uh, so the analysts are now forecasting closer to 7 to 8% Interesting. profit growth. Our models say the macro indicators suggest we're going to get closer to zero. A lot of this depends on that CapEx line, and it depends on how much business expenditure starts to bounce back, or if it does at all. I mean, we're modeling a 5% drop in capital goods orders X aircraft. It's sort of our core expectation to drive business expenditure, which means basically no spending by businesses next year. So you've got sort of this flat line earnings growth Unless you get resolution to some of the broader global uncertainties, which I think are weighing on business confidence and restraining investment. At that point, there is a really strong case for businesses actually to pile into investing into the future because capacity utilization is actually still quite high. They haven't invested a tremendous amount this cycle. There's no excess investment that they're recovering from. It's just a tremendous amount of uncertainty that is holding them back from making long-term plans and investing into their future. Tony Dwyer of Canaccord Genuity uh, writes in and asks the following question. In fact, he makes a statement, which is typical Tony's, of Tony. Tony's listening Tony to Tony says, us? you do remember our Mythbuster on the topic that showed <clears throat> the market does worse when the out-year estimates are being revised up, yeah. not down. Yes. Gina, just walk us through that dynamic. Yeah, well, there's this phenomenon phenomenon in the markets where stocks are forward looking, right? So (laughs) typically they actually peak in peak earnings years and trough in earnings trough years. If this is an earnings trough year, as we think it is, stocks should actually start to be doing better looking forward into 2020. Now, in terms of revisions, I think that the, the phenomenon there is what analysts are forecasting is not always what's priced into stocks. And this is a critical point right now is, yes, analysts may be forecasting high single-digit growth, but I have yet to speak to a buy-side investor, the people that are actually putting capital right. in, that suggests <clears throat> that that's realistic. So most buy-side investors that are thinking about the outlook for earnings growth are already modeling, at best, low single-digit growth, yeah. maybe even some contracting growth into 2020. So. That implies that you've actually got presumed upside to stocks because the expectations embedded in prices are not necessarily reflecting the expectations of the analysts. I'm so confused over what you just said. Charles Cantor was here. (laughs) Come on. Charles Cantor was here yesterday. I just love that she ignores you every time. You stamp all over going, yeah. She's been ignoring me since time began. And she just ignores you, (laughs) and I think it's beautiful. Let's let's review your facts. Gina Martin-Adams and the heat of the gloom stayed in stocks, which uh, will cut to the chase, as did Mr. Dwyer for that matter as well. Gina, Charles Cantor in here yesterday saying he hasn't seen a time where we go back to individual security analysis, how every company is a different story right now. Do you agree with that idea? I think that's a lot of this. I mean, they, unfortunately, every company trades still in line with geopolicy and in line with uh, Fed policy. So there is this incredible, overwhelming dynamic of policy moving stocks all at once in one direction or another. Yeah. However, the earnings stories are not all the same. And there is definitely very wide dispersion in earnings estimates. Right. I mean, you're seeing energy sector companies printing double-digit declines in earnings with more consumer-oriented and domestically-oriented defensive companies producing earnings growth still. Mm-hmm. And the same is in the sales lines. So there is very different sort of differentiated, differentiated fundamentals um, f- behind stocks. Yeah. The trouble is I think we still are in an environment where psychology is completely tied to geopolitics, 
politics in general, as well as policies to the extent that we yeah, have well, some. Yeah, we got an S&P 3000 close yesterday. John, did she do okay? Should we go for three days in a row a hat trick? I think we know the smartest Gina person Adams. in the room is, and she's about to leave. Gina, Gina Martin Adams. Great, no. great to catch guys. up with you. Good to see you. I'm Bloomberg <laughs> Intelligence fabulous. Chief, U.S. Equity Strategist. <clears throat> Busy week for earnings, Tom. In full swing now. It's great to see people parachute in and land at firms that absolutely fit their skill set. Dan Ketsev has been wonderful on the street. And to see him join BMP Paribas with their analytical and derivative history, uh, John, is absolutely superb. And, of course, this on foreign exchange. Dan Ketsev has been with BMP Paribas for years, Tom. You're talking like he's just joined them. Well, you know, but I mean, over, you know, as long as I've known Dan Katzev, it's been like, you know, what are we talking? I think it's been six years, years, hasn't it, Dan, that you've been with BMP Paribas? That's correct, but, yeah, we, but, go, we, go but we go way back. But we go way back. And, you know, it was just one, the day that I heard that Katzev was going to BMP Paribas. Six years is a blip. It was like total perfect fit. You're reminiscing. Yeah. You know, Let's get to Dan Katzev, shall Barry we? Manilow. BMP Paribas, <laughs> head of FX Strategy in North America. Good morning to you, Dan. Good morning. Let's talk about this US dollar starting to weaken up over the last couple of weeks. A lot of people trying to work out whether it's time to reposition their portfolios with more of a global tilt away from the United States and what the foreign exchange story is around that. What are you telling clients at the moment? Well, you know, the dollar has been remarkably resilient uh, for the last few months. So um, it makes sense to us that it's starting to come off a bit and catch up to what uh, yields have been doing and what the Fed has been doing. It seems what, you know, maybe we underappreciated a few weeks ago is that Brexit was holding the dollar up more broadly, not just versus the pound, but also versus the euro. And as we see some of the Brexit tail risks fade, uh, euro is looking a lot perkier. Well, let's talk about that. We've reclaimed 130 on cable. People trying to work out whether we establish a new range in and around 130 or whether we can drift higher. I really started to think about this too. As we've started to pull down the odds of a hard Brexit, cable has inched from 120, in fact, surged from 120 out to 130. The post-Brexit high is in and around 140. Mm. That was the spring of 2018. Euro dollar was at 125. Euro dollar right now is at 111. The path to 140 without a broader call on a weaker dollar looks pretty difficult, Dan. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree with that. It's going to be hard to get up there without the dollar uh, weakening more broadly. Um, You know, we had done some analysis um, uh, early on and said, you know, in a uh, anything but a uh, no-deal scenario. 133 was a reasonable target for, for cable, for sterling USD. We're almost there now. Uh, certainly, you could overshoot that, especially if, you know, we really lock down the uncertainty yeah. this this week. But, you know. It, with sterling, and, and this is outside your remit, but, you know, you're not talking to the traders and all that. As John mentioned, we would have a ginormous surge in strength of pound sterling. Mm-hmm. Were a lot of people on board that trade? I mean, did a lot of people make a lot of money? Or was it a lonely success? I doubt a lot. I don't know. I doubt it. Because I think my impression talking to people over the last few months, people who who trade kind of very dynamically, was that it was too difficult to to really trade uh, the whole whole, um, Brexit saga. So people probably weren't involved. um, You know, certainly some... Some probably were, but I don't think it was a a huge deal. Yeah. You know, we talk about Johnny's ginormous moves, but are they lonely moves? Well, let's talk about it. Bob Sinch used to be great at it. There was a big short position sitting on top of cable. How much have we taken that off now in the last six weeks? 
Uh, I mean, our, our you know metrics would suggest a lot of that has come off and probably even more you know in the last few days. Um, there's probably a big underweight, you know, looking beyond just the sort of dynamic positioning, underweight of uh, sterling risk among longer-term investors. Uh, maybe that still has some more room to um, to unwind if we really got certainty and you got a resumption of inward investment and stuff like that. Let's talk about that word certainty. Yeah. I had someone write in to me this morning and said, please, please ask your guests about removing uncertainty. So many people come on the program and say, if we get this vote go right. through at 7 p.m., it removes uncertainty. What kind of uncertainty does it remove? Because this is just stage one. Right. Stage two on establishing what this relationship could look like could take years. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're removing is the risk of uh, no deal or uh, you haven't really removed it even, but you've reduced it quite a bit. It certainly seems like it's been reduced in terms of an immediate risk. So um, you've eliminated or reduced a tail risk. Yeah. But as you say, uh, there's there's you know still a massive um, un- uncertainty in terms of what the future looks like. Uh, I- Dan, I bet on the Yankees and I bet on Tottenham. I got to make some money back here fast. <laughs> Is your best trade right now strong yen? Yeah, that's our, our still our favorite uh, currency in the G10. Uh, we think. Um Japan is, is going to lag uh, easing in other G10 economies. Um, they're already lagging easing in other G10 economies. Uh, Japanese investors have a lot of exposure to um, global fixed income and yields are coming down uh, everywhere. So the risk is they hedge their FX risk and, and yeah. we see a, a big surge in the yen. Dan Ketsev, thank you so much with BNP Paribas. Our chief financial correspondent, Shanali Basic, darkens uh, the door. Shanali, U.S. Bank Corp is trying to catch up on digital. Am I right? It's a hopeless task. If it is hopeless, what are they really trying to accomplish by shrinking retail and spending more on digital? By shrinking retail time, you're also cutting costs, remember? And it's really impossible right now to be catching up to some of not only the big banks like Jamie Dimon's JP Morgan that's spending $12 billion a year on technology, but think about it this way. You have Stripe, which is above the market cap of Deutsche Bank. The big that's fintechs. Stunning. Are okay. huge. How many do you have a model with Michael Moore and Carolyn Salas <laughs> and our finance team of how many jobs are going to be lost coast to coast as we go digital? Uh, actually, Mike Mayo, Wells Fargo, has that number. He thinks it's going to be hundreds of thousands. I think it'll be more over time, uh, right? That's a John. This is like retail and like Amazon. Yeah, it's that big a deal. Should we talk about another big deal? It's just crossed yeah. the Bloomberg. Yes. Adam Newman to step down from the WeWork oh, board. Oh my word! This yes. is coming from the team over at that. Dow Jones. Shanali, there's some options on the table for WeWork. One is from JP Morgan, at least JP Morgan exploring some options for them. Another is from SoftBank looking for a majority stake, which was tied to Adam Newman stepping down from the board. Does this headline imply that they're leaning towards the soft bank bailout option? It certainly does. They've been leaning toward that option for days now. Uh, they like SoftBank. They believe they have more patience under SoftBank. Some of these other headlines from Dow Jones are also pretty stunning because SoftBank is doing something that JP Morgan's not even able to do, and it's pull off a credit line. And so they're figuring out a debt financing package. And I can't un- translate that. So they're not just... What's a credit line? Let's get back to first principles. Well, what they're not doing here is doing this JP Morgan very complicated 15% payment. 15% equity kicker, da da da. Exactly. Uh, and so, what the credit line will look like from SoftBank is a little more complicated. We don't know the details of that yet. We know that Mizuho and other Japanese banks are 
peripherally involved. Um, SoftBank itself, according to these headlines, are sending extending five hundred million of credit to Newman himself, which what? is interesting. Yes, that's that's what the headline says, and I have a little bit of disbelief. So here he's as well. buying. So John, he's buying lunch today. <laughs> I have no idea. The what headline, headline says he's going to get two hundred million. Well, that CNBC reported yesterday that he'd get two hundred million to hand over control. Okay. Why would he need a credit line? Has he has he taken loans out that are tied to the stock that, are, that <laughs> exactly. in order to get him to give up some of these no. voting rights, he would need he the, would need a credit line? Yes. So think about it this way: if so, the SoftBank deal and no J.P. Morgan deal means that if they dilute the equity, Newman has shares pledged towards his loans, five hundred million dollars worth of loans from J.P. Morgan, UBS, and Credit Suisse, and so uh, that. They would have had to require him to put up more margin, maybe sell some assets, his pretty homes <laughs> throughout New York. Be and careful. I know. <laughs> so that would have been a real problem. There is a sense of um, propriety on Wall Street, if you will, where SoftBank, everybody wants everyone to do well. You know, the, the lo- least money lost is the deal that will help everybody. So Newman here will be able to exit Somewhat, gracefully. somewhat gracefully, yes. Gracefully. I don't think you can exit this mess gracefully. SoftBank then, the report of the last 24 hours, looking to take a majority stake and valuing this company at $8 billion or less after valuing or it less. January of this year. January of this year, this company was valued at $47 billion. What does SoftBank do next? They take over if that gets confirmed. They have a majority stake. What do they do? So reportedly, they'll own 60 to 80%. Like I had mentioned earlier, what WeWork liked about SoftBank is the hope that they'll be more patient, right? What this does is uh, they were about to run out of cash, John, right? And so uh, now, will they have enough cash to not only resume operations? In the news flow here, which is extraordinary, this is really important, Shanali. There are all sorts of banks tied to SoftBank in these transactions. Do you assume with these announcements that J.P. Morgan and other institutions will have to book losses? You know, we can bring all of these loans right all the way back to Masasan, right? I mean, there are dozens of banks that have margin loans to Masasan. And they have to be priced well. now down. As John mentioned, what, John, 47 to 8, if you're lucky? If you're lucky. Which means any given bank that... Did the loan, they have to mark it down now, right? Yes. Yeah, so I think okay. that they're, you know, Wall Street is over. It's endlessly optimistic, John, John Tom. They, they, they really are. I, I'm Tom. That's <laughs> the stud over there. She's new here. She's new here. She's new here. It amazes me always because up till the summer when I was questioning the $47 billion valuation, I kept on being told, don't worry about it. We'll get there. <laughs> and so, well, you but see- to be to be clear, eight billion. It, it, it could be less, right? Will we know, John? SoftBank has already put ten billion into this company, haven't they? They have. They're ten and, billion and in already. And they're now valuing the company at $8 billion. And by the way, SoftBank shares react to oh. these fluctuations. So SoftBank has a lot on the line here. Shanali Basic, thank you thank so you, much. Shanali. Really Good wonderful analysis for the moment. Right now, Diane Swank joins us, Grant Thornton, here on the American Economy. Diane, I'm going to go to your charm, which is the Middle West of this nation. And right now, that is in the heartland of a trade war. Give us the local update from Chicago, what we would hear from Charles Evans, what we would hear from James Bullard of St. Louis, and all their good economists. What is the tone of the trade war so immediate 
in our nation's Middle West? Well, we are seeing the trade war has has taken a toll on manufacturing activity. There's no question about it. And the General Motors strike added insult to injury to that trade war to manufacturers, particularly in Michigan and Indiana. So that really was sort of um, a very hard situation. That said, Charlie Evans has already come out and said, listen, we've made a half percent cut, and I'm optimistic that, you know, that's enough for now, and I want to wait and see. So it's interesting that there is this ambiguity because because they have put some stimulus in the system. And what we're going to see later today is some of that stimulus paying off in terms of strong home sales. We have, right. I, we think we've got enough home sales to carry us out through the end of the year. Next year's another issue. But this is the first positive quarter for the housing market right. in seven quarters. Yeah, just a quick program note. I'm pleased to say I'll speak at length with Mr. Evans of Chicago in the early November at the Council on Foreign Relations. Really looking forward to a lengthy conversation on this moment. Diane Swank, you say we've got existing home sales out there. In our, do we have fiscal space in America? I'm looking at trillion-dollar deficits. Does, is, is Swank Economics say we have fiscal space? Well, this is one of those hard issues. Um, we have fiscal space to make long-term investments when interest rates are so low that pay off in terms of infrastructure investments. We have less fiscal maneuverability should we hit a recession. And what we really need is the automatic stabilizers to kick in much sooner and not wait for things to get so bad that we notice them that Congress then um, has to enact things to extend things like unemployment insurance and um, add-ons. In fact, we have fewer automatic stabilizers, those things that kick in when we do have a recession than we did during the last recession. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. One of the things people are talking about is using something we call the SOM rule, which once the unemployment rate goes up by a certain percent, we know we actually are in a recession. And instead of waiting for it to be declared, there actually to be an automatic um, sort of movement to be able to get longer-term unemployment insurance in this country. John Ira Jersey Publishing for Bloomberg Intelligence and our fixed-income shop calling it a hawkish cut. Hawkish cut. A hawkish cut. Hawkish this, could, cut. this could be the end of the mid-cycle adjustment. Is that what he's implying? I guess that's what he's implying. What, what are your thoughts cut. on that, Dan? Many people thought that a mid-cycle adjustment was just 75 basis points. If we get another one at the end of this month, do they then draw a line in the sand? I don't think they draw a line in the sand. I don't think they know. I, what stuns me is my own uncertainty about what's going to happen. I think a lot of things are contingent on how the global economy is in global uncertainty. Everything from Brexit still unknown, this close to the October 31st. We think it's an extend and pretend and trying to you know get an extension for the UK. But all of these things are factoring into now the Fed's decision making. And there is a bit of a strategy of how soon do you cut when you know you may need to cut later on and try to be a beacon of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. And I think that's a very difficult decision for the Fed to make. And there's more people pushing back on making a cut at this particular meeting than there were at the last two. And we've already had a lot of dissents going into the last two cuts. Diane, final question. The PMIs, the ISM numbers worried people in the last month. The market PMIs, your thoughts on what we may or may not get this Thursday and whether you can take any comfort or discomfort from the levels we're currently at. I think what we're seeing is the added pressure of the GM strike exacerbating those losses. We also saw that in the industrial production numbers, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. They're not back with the production up and running again. They haven't ratified yet. So all of this is still going to be weighing on us, and it's noise, and the Fed should look through some of it, but it's hard to delineate that from what's going on in the trade war. And I think what's important about all of these PMIs that are coming out is that it is showing a slowdown. We will see a slowdown later this week. That's confirmed. 
is a half percent enough to deal with that slowdown from the Federal Reserve? That's how much they've eased in cut rates this year. Nobody knows. We're in uncharted waters, and people saying the Fed doesn't have a book to look at how to do interest rate cuts right now. There is no precedence for where we're at. Diane, it's great to catch up with you. Diane Swank there, Grant Thornton, Chief Economist. It has been far, far too long since we spoke with Sarah Senator of Sanford C. Bernstein and Company to say she's a senior research analysis, barely describes, Paul, her ability to test the fast food that we eat worldwide. (laughs) She goes from store to store, from franchise to franchise, trying them all. Sarah, you were brilliant on McDonald's. The one guy came in, he resurrected a troubled blue chip. And the persistency of performance at McDonald's has been extraordinary. 17.5% shareholder return per year for the last decade. Is it finally enough? I mean, is this shortfall a blip or is it something more structural? I think, um, you know, I I think candidly, the company told us they were going to invest this year and that's what they've done. So if you look at the, you know, same store sales, which is the 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 hallmark of a of a good restaurant company is strong consistent same store sales they have that um you know in particular uh in some of the international markets really impressive but even uh in the US almost 5% same store sales so i wouldn't call this a blip so much as you know, uh, a decision to reinvest any upside that they might have gotten back into the business. And that's why, you know, GNA was was higher than than we expected or than they had maybe guided to. And I think that that is a reflection on just the the technology in particular, the needs of this business that have changed so much for the whole industry in just the last couple of years. Sarah, give a sense of the competitive landscape. We think about the fast food business is just so, so competitive in terms of store openings, in terms of pricing, in terms of promotion. Uh, where's McDonald's here? Uh, you're right. And and that's always been the case. I mean, uh, you know, McDonald's has the advantage of being huge. Um, it's, you know, its system is, is three or four times out of the next biggest burger um, system. So, you know, that all plays, you know, to the, yeah. to the importance of value and investments and all of these things. But there's no question. I mean, you know, you got to be on your game day in and day out in this business. Sarah, um, I'm trying to be responsible. Uh, I've been advised to be responsible. I just don't look that good on radio. <laughs> and a cheeseburger is 300 calories. The Paul Sweeney double quarter pounder with cheese is 780 calories as well. Is nutrition and the new American nutrition, is it affecting their financials or is it just sort of there and they really don't matter? You know, I mean, people, I think you, you hit on it um, right now with just that, <laughs> that, you know, you're you're being responsible, but also uh, there's a sandwich there that's 780 calories, and you know what? It's delicious. So what we have found is that people who go out to eat want things that are more indulgent. I mean, there's no question. You really? can eat. Yeah, you can eat. Um, you know, you can eat well if you want. You can make yeah. responsible choices. But when people go out to eat, they want things yeah. that taste good. Really? Surveillance <laughs> correction. 
I forgot to mention that when I have a 300-calorie cheeseburger, I have three of them. (laughs) Sarah, give us a a sense of international growth. Uh, Where is McDonald's seeing growth in terms of stores uh, outside of the U.S. right now? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's in the countries that you would expect, you know, faster-growing economies, more developing economies are where you are seeing some of the faster rates of growth. You know, China is a good example of that. Um, and certainly that's, you know, that is the, uh, that's the segment that had the highest comps. So uh, international development so licensees, those are mostly emerging markets and they're comping 8.1%. They're also seeing the best store growth. But there's some growth in, in more developed markets too, you know, in Western Europe. I mean, you, know, you look at a, comp- a country like the UK, which has put up now over 50 quarters of positive same-store sales. Yeah, that's hardly a, uh, you know, an economy that people would characterize as, you know, fast growing. And yet uh, McDonald's has managed to do quite well there with both same-store sales and, and, uh, and store growth. How about the breakfast market? I heard or saw that that? Wendy's is now getting, I guess, back into breakfast. And that's been an area that's really been McDonald's stronghold. Yes, uh, for sure. And to your point, Wendy's is trying to get back into breakfast. It'll be the fourth time they've tried. Um, So, you know, I think we're all sort of holding judgment to see what exactly it looks like this time and, and whether it's, it's different this time around. Um, McDonald's has a great bis- breakfast business. It's, you know, we think it's about a quarter of their sales, but we think it's probably closer yeah. to 40% of their profits. You know, it's, it can be very profitable uh, to sell, yeah. you know, egg sandwiches. And don't be a stranger. Sarah Senator, thank you so much. Of course, award-winning with Sanford Bernstein, just wonderful. And so many other things having to do how we eat uh, as well. We'll have to get her in here. Particularly, I need an update on Chipotle, Paul, uh, <laughs> Sweeney, with, with Sarah. I mean, they, they used to, I don't know if they do now. They serve margaritas. I mean, McDonald's doesn't give you margaritas. No, no margaritas there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.